welcome to the Temple of Blair episode L. This is another entry into the History of Roadrunner Records series, and this time it is Metal Mike. So Metal Mike is the owner-creator, general head honcho of Ardshock magazine in Holland. He's uh, basically been everywhere and done everything in relation to metal since the late 70s, early 80s. Name any band, name anything and he's had some input into it. Uh, the conversation itself would just absolutely kick ass. It's a little bit cringy because I was asking a lot of stuff about Roder on the business side, and um, he was he kept saying, you know, I'm the music guy, I'm not the business guy, which he was completely right about. However, even in uh, going on about the music stuff, he managed to re- relay so much information to me about how Roadrunner worked, especially in the early 80s, and, and how Case was working um, out of the Amsterdam office and who he was working with and all that cool stuff. So, this is Metal Mike Part 1. Uh, we're going to have another chat soon, and uh, in that chat I'm going to gear more of the questions about the music and uh, his perception of what Roadrunner were putting out at whatever time we end up talking about. Anyway, what you want to do is you want to check out Shock magazine, because the thing is, and you'll hear this, and if you're watching the video you'll see this, the guy knows fucking everything. Shock is very much like a written-in-stone tablet testament to the guy's knowledge of metal. He's a resource that we need as a community to mine from every day, and Ardshock is the product of that uh, of that information and of that knowledge and of all those experiences in one magazine. So do yourself a favor, give it a Google, and enjoy this chat, part one with Metal Mike. One, two, fuck shit up. You're writing a book or making a what? What is your uh, problem? <laughs> the the uh, the project it is kind of I call it a grade amateur docu series. So what uh-huh. I'm doing is I'm trying to paint the picture of Roadrunner from back in '80 when K started it up until 2012 when uh, it was bought out by Warner. The way uh-huh. it's presenting itself at the minute is kind of through timelines, PowerPoint kind of episodic um, presentations. Uh, mm-hmm. but also interviews like this. So really, I'm just trying to speak to the people who are there and get an, get an idea as to how it, how it ends up doing what it did and you know the people involved and all that good stuff. And, and your name keeps coming up in that period in the 80s. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah, but there's no, the thing is, there's no, there's no through-line narrative about Roadrunner except like in liner notes, like in the 25th anniversary Roadrunner United album and things like that. I was um, there in New York. It, it, were you at the office in New York? No, no, no. I never was in the office, and uh, I kind of never worked for Roadrunner, but that's a different story. But um, I worked for Roadrunner, but not as you th- might think. Um, <laughs> so curious. <laughs> um, yeah, this is it's really weird. Uh, well, I can I can just start a story, and then you. Uh, this- yeah, I mean, I've got I've got some questions, but let's just okay. Take it from no, the start. start with your questions first, and then I'll elaborate on that. Cool. All right. Okay. So, but it's interesting how I came to sort of realize that Metal Mike equals you because there's a few Metal Mikes. There's the guy that plays. Oh, there's only one. <laughs> there's um the guy that played for um Halford. Yeah, uh, Metal Mike Shashlik, Shashlik. I talked to him. I had him play on my 20-year anniversary of the magazine. I told him, you can't use that. (laughs) Why not? I've been using it since 1981. And there's one... 
on Twitter as well. There's a guy called Metal Mike, which I don't think is you, but no. I kept sending him the pictures of um, like the metal. Thanks to Metal Mike in the in the thanks sections of like Satan, Merciful Fate, all those old records where yeah. you're in, in the thanks section and yeah, you know, kill them all, ride the lightning, master of puppets, you name them, Trojan. Yeah, man. So so let's start from the start then. So what? What was your first interaction with the Roadrunner? When did they sort of appear to you as as a thing? Okay, I'll I'll that's that's, that's funny. I'll start that story. Go for it. Because I saw you you had um I don't know who you were talking to. You had like a timeline which started with Jim Croce and then it had it was my, my that's my mate that's my mate Raw and this that's everything I had at that time. I'm gonna have to redo it all again because I think there's there's so much more information I've got now of that period. Well, yes. I saw I saw the first metal album, which was down in that same line, was Anvil, right? That was the first metal reissue. Metal record. Yeah, so absolutely. I'll tell you how he got that record, okay? Go for it. Um, um, I started in 1980 with a magazine called Art Shock. You know, I've been doing that for 40 years now. Yeah. And the reason I started the magazine, in Eng- where you're based, in England? Yeah, um, north of England, yeah. North, where north? Leeds. Okay. So, um, and I, w- I started a magazine because there were all that wave, new wave of British heavy metal bands. You, you, you know, you already mentioned Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was working with Raven, Venom, uh, well, a lot of those bands doing shows and stuff in, in Europe with them. But nobody was writing about those bands. So I s- thought I started a metal magazine to write about all those great new bands. Even Saxon, Def Leppard, Iron Maiden were little nobodies at that time, you know, Maiden only had the, when I started, I think only the running free single out and the sound of those tapes, for example, Twisted Sister just had two promo singles out in New York. Well, it was a lot of new bands bubbling under nobody, you know, in our music magazines, you only could uh, read about Kiss, Status Quo and ACDC. I mm-hmm. said, much more bands actually. And uh, so I started a magazine myself. And uh, because I was a fan of the new wave of British heavy metal, I traveled to England a lot, to Newcastle to meet meet up with Dave Wood in uh, Tynanware in uh, and Walls End to to buy all the singles he put out on the Neat label. Then I went down to uh, to Durham where a Guardian Records was based. Then I drove down to uh, Birmingham to meet Paul Birch who had heavy metal records. And I also went to Port Vale a couple of times. There was a huge warehouse there. You know, in England, there were two musical uh, newspapers, Enemy and Sounds. I think mm-hmm. they were bi-weekly, and one week was Enemy, and the other week was Sounds that came out. And they always had advertisements in there. And one was of a warehouse in Port Vale. Mm-hmm. And why I tell you this, I was in Port Vale and getting, taking all the singles out of the rags to 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 trade with, with, with pen pals all over the world, Masaito in Japan, who started Burn later, Mike Farney, who started Use Metal uh, Records, or Shrapnel later, Brian Slagle, who had a magazine, Heavy Metal Review, who started uh, Metal Blade Records later. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of, I could write books with that kind of history. But, I'm sure you will. So I was there taking all the singles out of the wreck, and a box came in, a big carton box, and op- they opened it up there to put it in the racks for their distribution, whatever. And it was a hard and heavy album by Anvil. Hey, this looks cool. Never heard of Anvil. Oh, great. Guitar- two guitar players. Done. Oh, they look cool. I'll, I'll get this. And it was a shipping uh, letter in the, in the box. So I took not only the vinyl, but also the shipping letter. 
mm-hmm. for this uh, can, uh, Canadian import. And when I got home one day later, I called the number on the shipping letter and I get El Mare on the telephone. El Mare is Alexander Mares, the head of Attic Records Canada, right. the boss of Attic Records. His phone number was on the shipping letter. So I got in touch with him and I said, you know, can you take care um, that or can you um, make sure that this album not is only available as an import, but also that our metal fans can buy it as a, you know, as a, a, a European printed album final. So it's not so expensive. Mm. So I'm just a metal fan doing this kind of stuff. He says, well, I heard of a guy in Hilverson who wants to start a record company. His name is Says Wessels. Okay. I never heard of the guy. Definitely not a metalhead. Otherwise, I know most of the metalheads kind of, you know. So he gave me an address. So I drove to Hilverson, mm-hmm. um, where that guy was working in a little office. I think it was part of Poly- Polygram or Phonogram, Polydor Phonogram. or I think, yeah. I'm not sure. I think it was Polydor then, but. I'm not sure. So I met Sace Wessels and I gave him my copy of Anvil's Hard and Heavy and said, well, I talked to this guy in Canada, Almer, and uh, he says, he uh, told me that you would start a record company. Yeah, I think blah, blah, blah. So I gave him my copy and Almer sent me a new copy of the Anvil record. And that was my first meeting with Case. That's how so it started out. First thing you did was distribute to him effectively i gave him the first record metal record that he put out yeah um well not <laughs> give it to him but you know the guy in canada told me that he was yeah. that's that's how uh i got involved with Sage vessels and in the years after or in the a lot of in that time i um well my pen pal mike varney you know um yeah <clears throat> Uh, Shrapnel Records. He started with four compilations album, the U.S. the, the U.S. Metal Heroes or something mm-hmm. it was called, part one, two, three, and four. And then he started to put out real records like Cacophony and Marty Friedman solo records and mm-hmm. all those guitar heroes. And my, but Mike Varney never wanted to license his stuff. He just would, wanted to do everything out of Novedo in California. Mm-hmm. So I flew up there. Um, went to his house and had a long talk with him, interrupted every three seconds by a phone call of a band member trying to find another band member to start a band. You know, on the one line, he had Billy Sheehan looking for a guitar player to start a project. On the other line, he had a singer looking for a drummer. Every few seconds, the phone was ringing for a musician looking for musicians when I was there. So, And I convinced him to release the stuff outside of America or to um, license it to Roadrunner for Europe and Japan. Right. So that's how that got. I didn't work for Roadrunner. You have to understand I'm a metal fan. You're networking. Yeah. Hmm? You were just, you're just making metal happen. You were working for yes, anyone. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, so as a fan and like, and uh, he took me to meet them, which is in Cannes, France, where all the record companies came to get, I'm not sure where that still is, but in Jan- the, fir- the third week of January of the fourth week, it was always Super Bowl weekend. So it was the third or the fourth week of January. We were in Cannes for a week mm-hmm. and I was working in a booth for him and I got all the cassettes from the bands who want to get signed in to listen to them and send them away with a smile. No, this is not, not, not what Roadrunner is looking for, but you know, I can do a review of my magazine. So I got a lot of shit uh, for my magazine and I met a lot of my pen pals 
because uh, Brian Slayle came down. Mike Varney was there in one or two years together with Peter Morticelli, who had, what's the label? Something with an M. A progressive metal label. Peter Morticelli runs it. Peter Morticelli. Yeah, he, uh, he licenses stuff to Roadrunner. Um, uh, like like Steve Vai and stuff, that kind of prog. Right. And, <sighs> I can't see him. Peter Morticelli? Like, hold on, I'm going to check now. I'll, yeah, <laughs> I've got it as well. Okay, hang on. I'll, I'll find him on Discogs. Magna Carta. Magna Carta. Yeah. That's the label. Good. I said something with an M. So he had a, <laughs> a lot of progressive bands, and he came there together with Mike Varney. So I met Peter Morticelli there, and yeah, that's that's so that's how. I, so I was doing a lot of stuff for Roadrun to getting band signed. As I was, I did. I was doing the European shows of Raven, Phantom, mm. all those. Well, Satan, Merciful Fate, and well, a lot of bands. Yeah, and um, so I got in touch with Steve Wood, who all the time came down with the bands when I was doing shows. I thought he was their manager or something. I didn't know, and um, so Dave Wood released his stuff to Roadrunner for Analux and Germany, Austria, Switzerland. Uh, and it, Italy had a different distributor. I'm not sure what it was, but um, so I took care of that one. And probably around '85, somebody told me this is called A and R manager. It's a job. I said I don't know. I just want to get this stuff released on his label. Like the first Merciful Fate EP was mm-hmm. recorded in the Netherlands uh, on Ravon Records. Ravon Records was a label run by one of my writers, Stefan Royakus. And Jacques okay. Hustings, who worked at the local record store. And uh, he also had, uh, Stefan also had a lot of pen pals like uh, Ken Anthony in Copenhagen, who sent them all the demo stuff, the pre Merciful Fate stuff. Yeah. So they recorded the first EP on, on Ravon uh-huh. in, in the Netherlands. And the first full record that came out was an Art Shock magazine compilation record with, with yeah. several Dutch bands. Okay. And so when the label or the band became too big to run on that little label, uh, they licensed uh, to Roadrunner. Right. Licensed to Roadrunner to put the first Merciful Fade out. Uh, Eve, let me give us give me a second. I have so much um, um, uh, diamonds in my uh, vinyl collection. <laughs> let me grab oh, this one. This is a nice one. The first Merciful Fate record, Melissa. This was the original cover, which wow. never had been used. So it has the road, road runner stuff, but I don't know who didn't like it. But this was what M- Melissa had to look like. This was the first That's one. Awesome. I, have, I, love I, have the la- I have the lacquers here. This is like 15-inch lacquers. But also, oh, I have so <laughs> people, could, you know, they could die if they see the stuff I have in my collection. <laughs> would die that would you know hire a plane and rent here and bit you know give me Put shit money for all the stuff i have i have like yeah. so much but that's, that's okay um, but i'm a fan of the music and i've collected a lot of shit sure, um, sure. so that was merciful fate came to the label through uh, ravon records hmm. and so in around 85 um somebody said it's called a and r manager um you could you know it's a job okay 
what now? But I had my magazine. It's getting bigger and bigger. And I was starting a corporation in 85 with Metal Hammer, the German Metal Hammer. This was two mm -hmm. years before the British Metal Hammer started. And I said, okay, I'm going to do the magazine. It's called Archuk Metal Hammer now. We did it several years. Um, so the ground floor, uh, well, first the office was in the Willem van Egenstraat in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. uh, the ground floor was the office and two stairs, set stairs up was where he was living. Then the office moved to the Van Egenstraat, next to the Vondel Park in Amsterdam. And there the ground floor was the uh, Roadrunner office, and one floor up was Archer Metal Hammer. Well. So I could use their office, so I could do their A&R work, write bios in three languages, because I speak English, German, and Dutch. Okay. And so work uh, for Roadrunner and work for the magazine at the same time. So what, let's let's take that as a, like a let's take that time period then. So why did Case want to go for metal? Because he was an opera guy. He had he had no connection with metal, right? No, not at all. Well, he's a smart he was a smart businessman, but he didn't know jack shit about metal. Yeah. Um, well, that's okay. But he knew how to. And I mean, his I always saw the sales sheets, and Jim Croce was. When selling a lot, I mean, that paid for all the bills in the company because wow. uh, metal was not not that big yet, uh, mm. not not in that big scale. So uh, the 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 bands that sold the best were, of course, Metallica records because they kept on selling. You know, um, well, that's not a story. One of my pen pals. Where, I don't know where to start, you know, because it's so... <laughs> it's so, yeah, there's so many threads. Yeah, so, okay, I'll give you one little example, and then you know where it ends up, where it, where it adds up to. <laughs> Lars Ulrich, I mean, mm. Archer was the first magazine ever do a feature on Metallica. Right. And only because of their demos. Not the No Life Till Letter demos, but it were all single cassette songs with one song every time when Lars had finished or James and Lars had finished a new song they sent it to me because mm -hmm. they wanted to have my opinion on the music so um, and then Lars called me um, you know we always do shows on the uh, on the west coast but you want to do shows on the east coast mm -hmm. he said you know who you can uh, you know you know somebody I said, yeah, sure, sure. Hold on, I'll grab something else. <laughs> it's nice to show that stuff. Hold on, it makes it nice. Let me see. Okay, here's one. There's a guy called Johnny Zazula. He does shows on the East Coast. This is Rock and Roll Heaven, um, Saturday, October 13, 1982, with Riot, Anvil, and Raven. And I was doing the, the bookings for Raven, so, okay. <laughs> and Tannenberg, by the way. So, um, this is, hold on, this is a show, the Raven Metallica, the Kill 'em All for One tour. <laughs> Kill 'em All out and Raven All for One. Okay, this was the first independent, little small independent label doing a worldwide American tour. Wow. Hold on. So, <laughs> Lars called me, I said, yeah, Johnny Z, I do shows with him, with Vandenberg on the East Coast and Raven, I just sent him over there. And they stayed in the band house, I think, with Antrax members also there. Mm -hmm. Antrax didn't exist yet. I think Scott Ian was there. So I told him, you know, good, Johnny Z, he does shows in Brooklyn, Long Island, blah, blah, blah. 
they went over there, fired, staying on the way over, flew Kirk in. They were staying in the same house, band house, where uh, Raven was staying around that time. He couldn't get the band signed to a label. Nobody wanted to sign, sign Metallica, so he started his Megaforce on his own. Mm-hmm. And Megaforce, he released his stuff for Europe to Music for Nations, to yep. Martin Hooker. And, um, and I made sure that Roadrunner did... Uh, Battles, uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, uh, all the releases from Music for Nations in, yep. in our part of the world. That's something I, ra- I arranged with uh, Johnny Z. Mm-hmm. So, um, where were we? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> we, uh, we, st- we, st- we started ask- asking, so how, why did why did Case go for metal? And you were saying, well, it sold. You know, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. So Metallica, uh, so we put out Metallica uh, just tell you this was a yeah, long yeah. run i, I feel like i'm throwing a grenade at you <laughs> there's so much yeah there's so much but so that's how we got involved having uh metallica stuff cool. and says <clears throat> was surprised that the metallica record kept on selling normally uh an album would sell really hard high numbers in the first couple of weeks and then it mm-hmm. you know it trickles down yeah and with metallica it just kept on selling 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 I did their first. I did the the first European tour I put together. The seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's another story. I, I'll give you a small. <laughs> yes, everything is connected with 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 a story. Yeah, sure. I did a festival, the the second Archer Festival in 1982, mm-hmm. and I had Venom as a headliner, mm-hmm. but their gear got confiscated, got stuck after a show. Johnny Z with them at the Canadian border, so they didn't have the gear. So they had to cancel their headlining show. I had Merciful Fate opening. Trans from Germany, Raven, Vandenberg, and headliner was Venom. Venom mm-hmm. canceled, so I put Accept there as a headliner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was doing the show, the shows, the bookings for Accept too. Yep. So it was all my bands I was working with uh, on the festival. Because Venom, I, th- I thought the music sucked, but there was so much hype built around the band. I said, I'm going to do uh, your first show. And then I won't work with you again. Just the first mm-hmm. show, because everybody, you know, is want to see this biggest band with the biggest show ever, yeah, bigger yeah, than so. Kiss, blah blah blah. So, um, so they didn't they didn't play in '82. So I was preparing another festival in '84, the 11th of February '84, mm-hmm. and then, and so I said, I called Lars. You know, you want to play this festival? I sent you money for plane tickets, blah blah blah. That's how it went way back. No yeah. John Jacksons of this world were involved yet. And so he said, yeah, but can we do more shows? So I called Eric Cook, who was the manager of Venom. Yeah, we're doing uh, seven shows, but they can't do the last show, the Hammersmith one, uh, for the Seven Days of Hell tour because uh, we're going to shoot that VHS video and there's so much explosives and stuff. We can't have another band on stage before we play. There's so much shit lying around there. Yeah, yeah. So I t- told Lars, you, do, you can do six shows. There's uh, three, I think, one in Cologne. one in The first one was in Poperinga, Belgium, one in Cologne, Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. And, well, the, the last of the six of the seven dates was the Archer Festival, mm-hmm. 11th of February, eighty four. So I had Metallica playing there and, and Venom. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know what the, why I was telling this, but it had to, to 
that's how I got Metallica into Europe. I did their first tour. I arranged their first tour. But this is you just as 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 you as a consultant, not you as with Roadrunner or anything like that. You no, 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 no. I had nothing yeah. to do with Roadrunner. I started working for them in eighty, end of eighty five, beginning eighty six. So even though you were, even though you were, you were always getting all the bands on the label, sure. <laughs> That's sure. crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm just a metal fan trying to get that stuff out on a on a metal label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could so, start my own label. I would be uh, in a different position now. But <laughs> yes, I mean, so I I didn't work. I, I did, so I did a lot of stuff for them, but just as a metal fan, I wanted to have that stuff out. But my main thing was I'm still already forty years doing this magazine. So. You appear on the thanks to all of these, all of these albums. Is that just because in your capacity as um, Ardshock, giving them reviews, giving them the spreads and the exposure, and yeah, and get them signed to a label. Yeah, and get them signed to the label. (laughs) Yeah. So in on that point, then on getting them signed to the label in '83, Ardshock '83, that that's the festival of that year appears to be the day quite a few bands end up getting signed to Roadrunner. I think that's where Merciful Fate put their ink on the dotted line, as well as Satan. It was 82. 82 oh, it was 82. 82. Right, yeah, 82. okay, okay. 83, I didn't have a festival. I had one in February 84, and I had one in the uh, middle of 82. Right, okay, okay. So with Satan, specifically about Satan, was that a recommendation on your part? Because I, because of where they're based, I said... Surely you guys should be with Neat Records because you're next door to Neat because they're from up in Newcastle. And they said they called them up and they got told to, you know, got told where to go. So how did they end up in front of Case? I don't, I don't know how they got signed to Roadrunner, but I have a little story. Just um, <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's, it's no, really, I love it. I love it. I, just yeah, I had a, I had shows booked for them. The first one was a Dynamo Club and then some more shows. Yeah, and they were stuck at the border. Because in those days, you had a carnet, which was a list of gear you bring across the border, mm-hmm. and they check the list. And when you come back across the border back home, the same stuff has to be there. So you didn't sell it. Yeah, you know, yeah. so, so it, was a col- it was called a carnet. Mm-hmm. It was Satan's first tour. Brian, uh, Brian wasn't in the band yet. Uh, I mean, Brian was in Avenger or Blitzkrieg. And, uh, there was a, a carousel of singers at the time. So the first yes. tour Satan did was with Swifty, with Ian Swift, yep. who was also an Avenger. And, but Brian Ross and Swifty changed position a couple of times. And then some were in Satan, some were in Avenger, and some were in Blitzkrieg. The mm-hmm. first Blitzkrieg record, I mean, was already written around 82, but it came out in 85, 86. But that, that's mm-hmm. a different story altogether again. So they were at the border. So I got a call. Yeah, we can't cross the border. We don't have a carnet. Mm-hmm. So, we, well, we need somebody who has, can vouch for us so we can cross the border mm-hmm. and, you know, puts up his money as a deposit kind of thing. So we, if we come back and they check, they check, we can get back and across. So my father, who had a barber shop, he vouched with his shop. Yeah, you know, as a as a well, so they could enter the country for their first tour. Okay, (laughs) wow. (laughs) But I I didn't sign the Satan to the to the label. I didn't. I mean, I didn't work for the for the label yet. I don't know how they got Satan. I don't really don't know how they got them. Mm. 
But uh, I made sure that first tour happened, or my dad did. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so <laughs> at this time then, so before you're hired at Roadrunner doing A&R, who else is working with Case? Because I don't know who's there. Is he a one-man band? Is, is he? No, uh, he was there, and his he had one promoter guy who did uh, working for a... Went, went with the stuff to radio station stuff. His right. name was Dennis Clute. And Dennis Clute, I think around 82 or 83, he went to Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a brother. I don't, I don't know what his brother's name is, but Clute is his last name. And they started a record company called Dino, I think. Dino, Dino Productions, Dino. D-I-N-O, Dino and they released compilations, records, and stars on 45, and all kinds of compilations where famous Dutch artists were singing together some hits and mm-hmm. remakes and stuff, and was uh, number one in the charts for, for half a year or something. So it was really right. a big, it's called Dino Records. And he, Dennis and his brother, did that out of N- Indonesia when he left Roadrunner. But he did some prom- promo for radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it um, but there was also a connection with Roadrunner uh, I think the distribut- uh, distribution went in the first year through Bertus and Bertus. and at Bertus one of the guys Bertus is kind of was a link between Bertus and Rough Trade I'm not sure how the uh, the business ties were around then. Okay. And that part of the company was run by Jan van der Linde. And Jan van der Linde also had a label called Provoke, where he did jazz and bluesy artists. Okay. And when I worked at Roadrunner in 86, there was a guy working there called Ed van Zell. And Ed van Zell later became the owner of Provoke and mm-hmm. Mascot Records. Puts out Aryan, but also the older Joe... Uh, Bonamassa and all that stuff. And that was how I started to uh, working some financials. I'm not sure exactly in the financial department. Mm -hmm. He worked for Roadrunner in a different room for, yeah, I don't know, bookkeeping stuff. I'm not sure exactly what he did. Mm -hmm. But he he started that label, uh, Provoke and Mascot later. And he worked with me there. And then you had Wally van Middendorp worked there also in an office. Mm-hmm. But he ran, I think, a dance label or something. I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not into that kind of music. But Wally then he started to work in the Goat Productions, in the Goot, in the Goot. Uh, it's an American company, I think. He does still work for, and he's involved with Alter Bridge. And right, I'm not okay. sure what, what is thing. But he started. To, he worked there. Also for I think for Rough Trade, but in the Roadrunner office. I'm not. I don't know exactly how the connection was, but but Jan van der Linden was, let's say, the co-boss of working with Says on a lot of things. Okay. But I'm not sure how the how their business how their deal was. Okay. So there was a Jan van der Linden there. He wasn't sitting in the office, but when the big when there were big meetings, he was always there. Okay. And he had, and, and Says had a secretary who did all the stuff that had to be handled. I don't know her name. Like when King Diamond would call. Hi. That'll be her. Okay. I'm just trying to piece, pull together like a family tree because there's, you don't hear about any of these guys at all <laughs> in any of the well, songs. He had Provoke and, uh, yeah. and 
you should call at from Mascot. At you know, I'll, get, I'll give you phone numbers. Um, well, Ed runs Mascot, but he worked. He started working in Roadrunner, I think, '86, maybe '87. Right. Yeah. But yeah. um, but he did uh, all the yeah. I don't know bookkeeping, financials. He probably knows more about the business side because mm. he bought the company of Jan van der Linden. So he can tell you uh, probably more, much more precise what the link was with Jan van der Linden and says Wessels how okay. that company got stru- was structured in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think Says was the lone owner. I think Jan van der Linden had a part of it. I and think Steve Ricardo I, said the same thing, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't know that." Who said? Steve Ricardo. Okay, Steve, who does a uh, kind of A and R for uh, Nuclear Blast now in New York, same as Monty does. Um, I don't think he's I, at Nuclear Blast. I met Steve a couple of times at Meet Em, of course. Yeah, he said he said you uh, shared a room. Um, and got hammered for three days or something like that. Oh yeah, it can at the meet, I'm sure. And uh, one year, and I think in 2006 or no, 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 sorry, 1997, I think Monty, I met him for the first time. He didn't know shit about. I, I worked him in. I introduced him to a lot of people and stuff. It's so funny, and they were all on the on the on the, the uh, Rue de la Croisette where the, where the, the medium was, you have all those ladies, you know, hookers standing around. And he was trying to be the cool Italian. I, I, and then he lifted her shirt up or well, how should I say? She lifted his shirt up, his right. skirt up. <laughs> and he jumped like four yards back, you know. <laughs> he, um, he asked for too much meat. Um so that was my first meeting with 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 with, with him. But he, um, I think the first band he signed to Roadrunner, I think was Sepultura. But I didn't believe in Sepultura because I was okay. Archuk had also <laughs> no no no. I have to explain a little bit. No no, it's fine. It's fine. I just I just understand. There's so many threads and so many stories. Yes, and there's can... so many, and and we start talking. I remember, like in '83, I started with the German Archuk, a German. Yes. A version of Archuk magazine, and it was run by Axel Tuberville. And Axel Tuberville was a guy who had a record store in Essen, Germany, and he did my magazine. But he also started the label Shark Records. Right. And yeah. the first sign, one of the first signings on Shark Records was Sepultura. So the first two Sepultura albums in Europe were released on Shark Records. So right. I was work, working with that stuff through him. Uh-huh. But I, I thought it wasn't interesting enough for Roadrunner. And then a year later, I think Monty got tipped off by Borivoy Cregian. Mm-hmm. Borivoy runs – oh, there's another story. Borivoy runs Blabbermouth right yep. now. Yep. <clears throat> Before Borivoy, Sace asked me, Will you, do you, are you interested to starting a, um, a news web zine, right, you know, for okay. news worldwide? Because yeah. A blabbermouth was a roadrunner thing. I mean, I think Borivoy got paid by by Says Wessels mm-hmm. or by by Roadrunner to start that blabbermouth uh, thing. Okay. But Says asked me before. I said, "No, I have my I have my monthly blabbermouth called Archuk. I can't yeah. do another job on the side because I think it's got. I mean, internet didn't exist around that time or just mm. it's infancy. I mean, yeah." Yeah, Roadrunner had a telex machine where you could type in stuff that came out at the other end at the New York office. That's how they were communicating. All right. Um, but so I did everything through the phone. Letters, mm-hmm. you know, took a month to America and stuff. Um, 
so Steve Ricardo, I met him in, in Cannes and in uh, Milan, and also uh, Monty Connor, 86, 87, maybe. But I, yeah. I, I did, I went for Says there for 10 years in a row. Right. So that's, so you, you worked at, was this working at Roadrunner or working with Roadrunner? No, no, uh, I didn't work for Roadrunner. I went to meet him for 10 years. In oh, a you, row. Went to, you went to meet him. Okay. Sorry. You're right. So and when meet him is that, that, the, no. the, that industry, whatever industry thing, you know, sitting oh, yeah. at the bar with uh, Davy Jones and drinking yeah. a, a forty buck beer. So I, <laughs> Davy Jones, you know, the singer of the Monkeys. I said, so yeah. uh, it's your fault that Dave Bowie had to change his name. Yeah, well, it is. <laughs> David Bowie was is Davy Jones, and he had to change his name because the one from Monkeys was so popular. You no, know, you know, it that's why he changed his name. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I was sitting at the bar with him. You meet all kind of weird people, but uh, also a lot of metal, you know, metal people out of business, pen pals. That's that's why I like to go there, meet those people. Like for me, as a magazine, wanted to get something done, calling a New York office, and you get a secretary on the phone. No, I would say no, no, Mister Blah 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 is in the meeting. I said, you know, tell Al it's Metal Mike on the phone, and he'll definitely want to talk to me. Yeah. So I met all those people in. You know, at the bars, having a drink and chat, you know. And um, so I liked me then because I got to know a lot of people personally and mm. I didn't have to go through those walls to reach the right people. Mm. And mm. Um, But that's always how it worked. I mean, that's what I did with Ross Smallwood and all those, you know, people. It's just on my speed dial, direct, <laughs> dealing direct with band members and managers and mm. always have done it that way. I've got one more question about Case, and then I want to work yeah. into the A and R stuff. Did he A and R for Black Sabbath back in the seventies? Well, I think Black Sabbath was on Vertigo, and that is a sub-label by Phonogram. I think, or I think there was. I think it was a. I think there was a conglomeration of Polygram, Vertigo, and a few other bits and bobs. Uh, a few yeah, other, other he worked before he worked there before he started Roadrunner. Roadrunner yeah, it could have been, but I don't know. <laughs> I met him when I brought the uh, envelope record into his office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I read it somewhere on, I think it was Gloria Cavalera's blog saying, okay. oh, he, he, he was Sabbath's. And I, and I just had no, I, I've had nothing else since then to sort of verify that. Not that she'd lie, but it'd be good if, if someone else knew. I don't know. I know say. Gloria, I mean, a long time before she, uh, you know, got, got in touch with Max. Yeah. Yeah. What was she? Was she just a manager at that point in the mid 80s? Just managing bands because she yeah, wasn't working with Sacred Reich. I, th- I think she worked with Sacred Reich at that time, and that's how Atrophy. she met him at the Dynamo show. Uh, Andre, who works in the office here, well, I mean the desk next to my desk, Andre works here, and Andre's been a writer for Art Chuck since eighty-one. Is this Andre Ver- Right, right. He's part of Dynamo Open Air. Got it. He's, uh, he's, He's uh, he works for me already. Fourteen years when Dynamo stopped, uh, I got him. You know, I took him under my wings. He works for me, but for, at, now with COVID, he works out of home. Okay, uh, I'll, he'll be here tomorrow. But yeah, I worked with Andre. Well, he's one of my best friends, so I, I talk to him five times a day or something. Because he he did things because he gets. You know how I was saying at the start, you appear on the thanks section of so many albums. So does yeah. he, but it's always. Uh, thanks to Andre uh, Voyerson and his mother. Is there a joke? Yeah, because because Satan and Merciful Fate and James and Lars they stayed 
his mother, his dad died when he was young, so they had a lot of space in the house. So they had right. some extra bedrooms. So when we, when I or Andre did tours with those bands, they stayed at his mom's house with him. That's it. That's the mystery solved. I've been trying to figure that out for ages. I wondered why it, that, that, that no, was that's always... That's why Merciful Fate stayed at his house. Well, a lot of bands, but Merciful Fate... Raven always stayed... I mean, Raven last year stayed at my house, you know? They, <laughs> they still come down here and crash at my place. Mm-hmm. When uh, mm-hmm. some tour dates get canceled they come over and, and stay here at my house for a week and i feed them and we go out and do all kinds of stuff yeah i still yeah. do that for raven that's nice until, to know that andre, andre was part of that story back then but now he's still working and he's still writing for you okay there's a there's a little story you have a well okay a little side story cool um um because my pen pal um brian slagel um the metal blade stuff in europe Yep. was handled by Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian Slayer was a pen pal of mine. Um, when Slayer put out the second record, Hell Awaits, they came to tour in Europe. Uh, May 85. 80... In May 84 or 85? God. Doesn't matter. <laughs> So the, the first show was at the Heavy Sounds Festival in Popering in Belgium. Yeah. And they were licensed to, from Metal Blade to Roadrunner. So they said, you know, can you, can you take care that Slayer is, uh, they can't talk well about Roadrunner, road that we take care of them and stuff. I said, sure, I'll, uh, you know, I go, I, go da- I go down there anyway because, you know, I'm doing a review of the it's festival. Show, yeah. So I got there and um, the crew was the four band members. Um, Johnny arrived, Tom's brother, who's still, well, until last year was in the crew still. Yeah. Um, Doug Goodman, his uh, tour manager, mm-hmm. he, um, he was a t-shirt, he worked for Ron Boutwell, which was a t-shirt company in California. Mm-hmm. Their office were in, on Malibu Beach. Um, and he was the driver and also doing t-shirt sales and a tour manager. And KJ Doughton, who was a pen pal of mine, at that time was running the Metallica fan club out of uh, Portland, Oregon, or right. well, at Oregon, um, um, Eugene, Oregon. Uh, me and KJ started Archuck America in '87. Oh, cool! Uh, so KJ Doughton. So there's you will see on the thanks list for the Metallica albums, you will see KJ Doughton. So that's right. K- okay. So KJ traveled with Slayer. Tom Mariah's brother, Johnny, and Doug Goodman. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Doug Goodman. Um, they had a van with a, uh, rented from, by, uh, from, uh, rented from an English company, so the steering wheel was on the right-hand side, and it was a stick shift. But yeah. nobody in the band or Doug, Doug could drive stick shift because mm-hmm. all those Americans only know automatic. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, Case asked me to um, put in a good word for the company so Slayer would be happy with Roadrunner. Said, you know what? I'm going to drive you through Europe. Me and Andre yep. going to drive you through Europe. <laughs> Andre never had driven a car in his life before and didn't have a driver's license. <laughs> the steering wheel was on the right-hand side. That was okay for him because always in a car, in a European car, he would sit at the right-hand side because oh, okay. I'll be on the left-hand side driving. Yep. So for him, it wasn't no different. 
Yeah. So when we were we drove up the highway and I was uh, shifting until fifth gear, then would crawl behind my seat mm-hmm. and take over the steering wheel. I said, you know, push push in the clutch if you have to brake and stuff. And, yeah, yeah. And then I'll, I'll shift up again, and then that's how we drove through Europe with Slayer, the Halloween tour. <laughs> Insane. Yeah. As uh, Andre well, so much to side to stories to that tour, and I gave everybody a paper camera to take uh, pictures, and then halfway the tour, gave them all to me. Again, I'm all developed, so now I have a stack of this high of pictures of the first European Slayer tour. Oh, wow. And there's a lot of stories, but this was Doug Goodman's first tour, and he failed miserably. But after that, he started uh, to be a tour manager, I think, for 15 years for mm-hmm. a band called uh, uh, something Green, Green Day. Oh. So That's he right. was, for 15 years, he was the Green Day tour manager. And the smallest show they did in Europe when I met him not too long, well, a few years ago, was like 20,000, I think, was the smallest venue they did. Wow. So he did that for, for, I think, 15 years. And he stopped doing that, I think, two or three years ago to take more time with his family. Sure. So that's Doug Goodman. And his first tour he ever did was the one where he had to drive the band, but he couldn't drive the car. So <laughs> me and Andre drove Slayer through Europe. Did um, Has Andre learned to drive since then properly? Uh, in America. <laughs> got his driver's license in America, but still he doesn't know how to drive, drive stick shift. But he can uh, drive automatic. Yeah, fair enough. It all works out then. Yeah. <laughs> and then so, Andre was doing, uh, you know, the Dynamo Open Air Festivals, the first, which was like the, the blueprint for more more than one day festivals like um, Grass Pop and Bakken. Yeah. All those yeah. huge, more plus, plus one day, you know, two or three day festivals of camping. They all learned to rope, still admit, got all inspired by what Andre did with Dynamo Open Air. That's, That's how, awesome. so how Bob Schumacher started to do a grasp up in Belgium, and um, Thomas Jensen and um, Holger Hübner started to do work in, in, in northern Germany. But yeah. there's all so so many stories and side stuff, and I'm kind of in the middle. I'm, I'm the spider in the middle of the web, making it yeah. all happen. But if <laughs> I tell you this, it sounds like it's arrogant. But it means no, just no. Uh, I'm I just a metal fan and. Nowadays, I interview people, and then they tell me stories what I did for them. I I forgot about because like when Lars calls me, you know, I say, you oh, know, go to Johnny Z. I do shows with him on the East Coast, mm-hmm. and Johnny Z becomes the guy that signs his makes his own label to put the first two Metallica records out. You know, yeah. But it's just me, you know, hooking him up with that. Like I did an interview three months ago with Arjen Lukasen from Arian, which is a huge mm-hmm. artist in Europe. He said, yeah, nobody wanted to sign me, but you you made sure I got my first deal in Japan. I sold 50,000 copies. I said, oh, fuck yeah, the Aki Morishita. Aki Morishita was a guy I met during the road run time and meet him, and I knew he signed that kind of band. Right. One of my pen pals was Masa Ito, who started Burn Magazine a few, late, few years later. On that festival with Venom Raven and Vandenberg and stuff I was talking about, he slept on my couch. Mm-hmm. Asaito flew over from Japan and yeah. you know stayed for a couple of days at my place when I was doing that festival. Mm. This was yeah. before Burn existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, came, he wanted to start a magazine and wanted to see how I was running things. I said, well, come that week. I have a nice festival going. So, yeah. Ah, very cool. Weird how stuff 
it's yeah, it's because it's all community driven, and you were just right in the middle, and you were just there. Yeah, but as, <laughs> just as a fan, not as a business guy or something. I mean, yeah. I'm still doing my monthly magazine out of here. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. So in '85, do you say you were hired as as A and R, or you were just doing A and R? I was just trying to get Ben signed to the label I believed in, but not as a yeah A and R man, just as a fan. And yeah. I was doing PR when I was working at at the office. Yeah. Like I went into the studio once a month, and I was um, we had cassettes like the new Carnivore record and mm. whatever new Mad Max and stuff. And we would I'd go into the studio in Hilversum and have one track of all of the upcoming releases, mm-hmm. and then was talking in English, and then also in German and in Dutch, and make cassettes. With, with a radio show with upcoming releases and give all info for the, um, what do you call it? The salesman. I'm not sure. The people that go, you have a lot of people working at a company that mm-hmm. go to the record stores and make notations. Oh, you want to have five of these, 10 of this. Right. Okay. This record. Uh, I'm not sure what it's called. Salesman or what do you call it? Uh, Stock person. I don't know. No, a guy that goes from door to door and wants to sell you a vacuum cleaner. That kind of... Yeah, salesman. Yeah. Salesman. Yeah, and yeah. Roadrunner had in Germany for SPV. And well, so the people who had to go into the stores and to sell Roadrunner products, so they would order, pre-order Roadrunner stuff, mm-hmm. they had a cassette to put in their car and listen to all the new releases. Uh, okay, so yeah. they had one song of Carnivore, one of Mad Max, one of Madison, one song of the new Anvil record. And I would tell something, this is a Canadian band, it's their second record, the first one was the blah, 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 and mm-hmm. this is Carnivore, the guy's called Peter Steele, it's look like they're in an ap- apocalypse earth and walking to earth after everything is that. And uh, talking, you know, a little bit bio, bio stuff and a little bit of what kind of music it is and mm-hmm. what they could sell or maybe where it would sell and make a story like that on the cassette for an hour and... Those people, those salesmen on the road going to all the record stores would have a story behind if they go there and they don't know shit about metal, they could tell they the, sell the sales guy, you know, this is new Carnivore record. This is the third Metallica record <clears throat> they already toured, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Carnivore, do you have any idea how Case came across Carnivore in the first place? No, I really don't. I can't tell you mm-hmm. anything about that. Mm, interesting that just seems to be that's another blind spot I can't seem to find any, any... I really don't know how he got no I don't know because this was something I don't know what I'm not, not even sure whether he had road racer I don't think he had the road racer office even yet no uh, it was 84 it's kind of all and the office opened in 86 yeah okay mm-hmm. so he worked with uh, combat or in oh in not called in effect Hmm? In effect, no, no. In uh, I'm talking about the distribution company. You had Combat, uh, and you yeah, had yeah. something with IN in I, I important. Important. Yes. So I, I think it went through. I think it came through people at Important. Right. Okay. okay. So some people in New York. I think it was important to this. Who did? Um, I think it was a distributor. I'm not sure. I think Important that was. was- the distribution and then relativity was linked to it and relativity had in effect and um combat underneath that 
Okay, so that's okay. how it's structured, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't know. I was, I didn't know the uh, business, as I told yeah. you before, the business ties on the background. Yeah, yeah, especially not in New York. I didn't have anything to do with the business side. Yeah, except yeah. for hooking him up with some labels, like like <laughs> getting him in touch with people who had a label. Yeah, yeah. Did you have yeah. a, at the time? Did you have like a favorite label? Like, would if you if you had a band like let's call it a Satan or a Mad Max, would you think, ah, uh, you know what? I want to give go these guys to Roadrunner, yeah. Always um, was it always Roadrunner, or did you think before? Did you think oh Metal Blade or SPV or Metal whatever? Metal Blade didn't exist yet. They started in uh, in the early days. They didn't. Oh exist. yeah, I mean, I'm just making examples, but um, yeah, you, yeah. Could have, you could have sent someone to to Neat, couldn't you? Why would you always pick Roadrunner? No, because Neat was ripping off bands. Ooh, really? Oh yeah. How Dave Wood is a crook. When I did shows with <laughs> Raven, I always paid David Wood. Thinking he's the manager, but the mm -hmm. band never saw one dime of the money I gave to to Dave. Mm -hmm. The Roadrunner. I mean, they stayed in my place so often. Now you hear all the stories. I sure. Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Roadrunner had a pretty. It was its deal was. It was looked upon as good for like kids, like for young bands at the time, but not a lot of bands got a lot of money unless they sold loads. So sometimes the bands sometimes feel like they were ripped off, especially those older bands. Um, like Satan didn't don't feel like they had a good experience with Roadrunner. I mean, I kind of empathize with Roadrunner because you can't you can't sink too much money in a band, and it's only gonna you know provide returns if they sell records. And if they don't sell records, then it's kind of yeah. Going I know up. it's. I mean, it's but, still the same now. You know, I mean. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. Trying, I, mean, I have a I have a brilliant record here on my laptop. I shouldn't have uh, handed to me by the artist, and I want to get it signed to a label. Mm -hmm. But they all think it's not going to sell well. I don't think it's one of the best records, especially of this year. Mm. I, what I meant by that was I'm I'm not trying to start no, no, smear campaigns. They see, okay, this is a solo record by this artist. His main band where he is working with sells this. So the solo effort of this musician sells maybe 30%. Uh -huh. And that's, uh, that's this much. And then we have to put advertising and buy it of blah, blah, blah. And no, we don't make enough profit or no, we don't see that we make any money off it. So we don't sign it. Yeah. They, yeah. They all, it's all numbers, but I'm, I'm not in that kind of, I'm just, yeah, a metal I'm just, fan. yeah, man, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just interested that you, you, you'd prefer, you'd send or you'd send K some, some tapes or some albums or something like that. And I, I'm interested as to why Dave, um, from neat was a crook it's just it's fascinating to me because some of those early i gave deals him was... money for the shows i did with raven all the money it. they earned and the band never saw a dime but i heard yeah. that 10 years later they didn't yeah, tell yeah, me yeah. Then. i just would have given it to him and you know let the dave wood fucker stay at home yeah i mean i think but with... i don't know about this stuff i'm just yeah. a fan i don't i don't see the dodgy dealings in the background you know yeah I mean, yeah. yeah you're a professional metalhead that's what i you're am like. I'm, I'm I'm a I'm a metal I'm still a metal fan I'm yeah. you know working my ass off twenty hours a day on the magazine or helping bands and artists because they always you know they always fight me for you know you got an idea where we should go with this or that and I give them my five cents you know did you know did you know of the great cat that little shit yeah sure <laughs> I just you know I, I got an interview with her last week Catherine um, Thomas. Catherine well, she's Thomas. screaming at you. 
Well, listen, she wouldn't, um, this is the thing, right? So I emailed her in the same way I emailed you, sick, and we have a, a quick chat. And she said, send me the five most important questions by email. So I did. And then she said, right, now can you promote my uh, upcoming CD on the... A new uh, 250 years Beethoven, dead, mush, whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I did that, I did that off the back of the Steve Ricardo conversation. Then she comes back with the answers. And most of it was like, it was a lot of it was just like the copy and paste of her press kit. A lot of it was like all in all caps saying, Jim, are you on your knees yet? All this sort of stuff. <laughs> it was, it's incredible because the thing about her is she's actually really fucking good. And she occupies that space, like where Malmsteen is, where your Jason Beckers are. And as like, as a young guitar player, that I, as I was about 15 years ago, I could have really used some just straightforward neoclassical guitar arrangements. But she wasn't there because she's not big because no one will work with her because she's very abrasive. <laughs> yeah. I met her five seconds in my life. The little <laughs> shit came up to me. She, she said, well, I'm not on the cover of your magazine. I said, because you're not good enough. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> Were you at the? Um... But I mail with Catherine Thomas all the time because that's her manager, Catherine Thomas. Right. Catherine Thomas's cat. Of course, yeah. <laughs> does she, does, uh, does Catherine Thomas scream at you a lot? No, not really, because she needs me. Hold on. <laughs> cat, 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 cat. Where is she? I'll come find her right now. It's okay. Oh, here it is. She sent me her guitar pick in the mail a week ago. I said, yeah. okay, I need more. Okay, then you have to put an article in. I said, okay, one pick will do. <laughs> Great cat. But uh, you mentioned my first, okay, my first error as an A&R manager uh-huh. I, I had a pen pal in Sweden called Johan Lannerbeck. Mm-hmm. And it was a 15-year-old kid jamming in the basement at home, uh-huh. recording stuff, jamming with bands like Silver Mountain, who I signed to Roadrunner, mm-hmm. um, and Heavy Load. Johan Lannerbeck was a great guitar player. When my other pen pal, Mike Varney, said, I need a guitar player for this band Steeler, but it sucks. Do you know somebody? I said, yeah, I have this friend of mine called Johan Lannebeck. He's really mm-hmm. has a different style. And that's how Ingve moved to America. Um, and he had uh, the Ingve Malmsteen's Rising Force. The first record was only released in Japan. Mm-hmm. It was an only uh, Japan release on Polydor. And I told Sage, listen, this is the best guitar player ever. Nobody... He's the fastest, blah, 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 all this kind of... I said, you should sign this band, but it's only out in Japan. Nobody puts it out. I said, you should, and it's going to be the greatest guitar hero of all time, blah, blah, blah. Around that time, there was nobody playing like him. Yeah. I mean, he's an arrogant asshole, I tell you that, but nobody was as good as him. So he put an offer out for signing Ingve for the rest of the world, excluding Japan. Right. And what the Polydor office in Japan did with that offer, they went to all the other Polydor offices. Look what this little uh, Amsterdam label is offering to sign Ingve, and then Polydor released it worldwide. Shit. 
So there's the user. There's some leverage. history for you. Yeah, man. That's fucking crazy. There's some history. I was what? playing his cassettes on national radio in 1980 already. Shit, man. That's crazy. Oh, yeah, I have a radio show as well. Oh, it's <laughs> not a story, but. Yeah. What would Case so was- look to in terms of, if you give him recommendations, what was, what was it that engaged him? Did he, because he, again, as we say, he's, a, he's an opera guy. So what would make him click and make him go, oh, yeah, fuck yeah, let's sign this band? I don't know. Maybe my enthusiasm. Or yeah. um, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't give him numbers and stuff. There was no, I mean, nowadays it's so easy, everything with the internet and stuff. But then it was so hard. I mean, you didn't have internet. You didn't have fax machines. Yet. Mm. Everything went totally different in a totally different pace, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm sending a letter to Lars offering him stuff. And a month later, maybe lucky, I get yeah. a you know, letter back if we're not calling. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Um. It's 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 yeah it's hard to understand for somebody who's who started you know was born twenty years later, if you know what I mean. So it was all it was all really weird. I mean, I was driving with my car to all the record stores and delivering the magazine, you know, mm. uh, packages of magazines instead of having a real distribution and stuff. That's that started the real distribution started uh, in 86 when I went together with Metal Hammer. In, yeah. in Belgium, for example, I had Mount Mausoleum Records packaging mm. my magazines in the boxes with <clears throat> albums to get them distributed through Belgium. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's, a, there's so many side stories, but I'll explain how one and one becomes two. There's a, lo- a lot of little stuff in between where sometimes I have a little part in there. Yeah, yeah. Did you so, know a guy called Gordon Beale? Gordon Beale, German. He, yeah, think, but he yeah. started, the first guy he had to do really promo in Germany was Leo Lanz. And I worked him in and introduced him to the older German press, uh, the magazine and stuff people was at the uh, Ride the Lightning Tour for Metallica, where Tank right. was support act in 85. I went, I went, uh, I was on the whole tour with Metallica because uh-huh. they're my friends. Yeah, sure. And uh, and I had Sace asked me to take care that if some magazines wanted to do an interview with Metallica, they also did Tank on the site, so they could do uh, Tank. Yeah. Um, there's a little story I don't know exactly. That's uh, has to do with another crook, uh, and <laughs> they Sace had a deal with GWR. It wasn't called GWR in the beginning. It was something with, let's say, Greenwood or something. But it had, the G mm-hmm. was green. GWR was an English label run by a guy. I forgot his name. And he had, he ripped off a band called Motorhead in England. Yeah, I was going to say Motorhead. Later, he was, hmm? I was going to say Motorhead lived, lived at GWR, whatever whatever it stands for. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know the guy's name anymore, but he... Uh, as, Says had a deal with him as well. Mm. I don't. I don't think Roadrunner put out Motorhead in Europe, but maybe other bands. Either. I'm not sure. There was a link there between Says and the guy running GWR. They did later. They did later. Not not in the early days. But he was there already. Also in the early days, uh, there, there was something. I'm not sure how that how that link. Uh, I can, I can they maybe were already that. working stuff together all in the early days when I wasn't really involved then. <clears throat> so the the Motorhead manager, I can't remember the chap's name. I don't know if he was associated with the label. I think his name is Ian something. Yeah, and, Ian is that, that's right. Yeah. It wasn't Ian Sales, but it definitely his name was Ian. I just wanted to tell you before you 
uh, Ian was his name, and the company was called GWR, but before that, it was something called Greenwood. Or... Mm. Let me see my old Rolodex where he's still in here. <laughs> I'll Google it while we're here. What's that? Word. It wasn't gun, that's Bobby Kopek. It wasn't. <clears throat> Oops. Was it certainly isn't Guinness World Records. Um. Something green, the G and GWR was called different. It didn't say on here, interestingly. No, I, I can't find it here right now. Um, no, different label. This is an old Rolodex, but. Hmm. Well, what was it, what I was going to say was in terms of a link. What I think... yeah, I, I don't know. They worked together on stuff, but I really oh, yeah, didn't yeah. know what it was in the early days already. I know. I, I, I might. Know, I... And told me uh, that that he got ripped off by that guy. I was going to say the um, case went to visit the management at some point, and apparently, case walked into the manager's office. I think it was this Ian chap, and he saw Jaguar's demo on the desk, and case just went, "Can you get me that band?" And that's how Jaguar ended up on Roadrunner. Really? Yep. I don't know. I, I mean, I knew I did shows with the Pepper Brothers. I had them on tour a lot of times together with Raven, Raven and Jaguar. Yep. Um, I loved their singles. I, I wasn't too fond of their records. Um, I mean, they're still back together. And one of the Peppers is still in there. Yeah, Gary. Oh, Gary is okay. Yeah, he's in Brazil at the minute. Okay. But uh, I, I don't know how that got. I didn't have. I did have nothing to do with that, <clears throat> getting signed to the label. I don't know how that. How that. Yeah, happened. it was just because we were talking about Motorhead and the management and yeah, 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 yeah. Links and stuff but like I don't that. know, but I mean, in my magazine, that's mm. why I remember so much stuff. Mm. This is part four. I have a new wave, a 10, 12 page new wave of British heavy metal record. Oh, uh, a new wave of British heavy metal. So this is an edition with all the rare stuff that came out, all the singles, which you cost like a thousand quid now to get them, you know, all the rare stuff. And the month before I had, this is the month before, I had the the important records on the label, like the first two, Ravens, Mm. uh, Diamond Head, uh, Saxon, Iron Maiden, Jaguar. Mm. So all this, you know, so I know a a little bit about, that time now because they all came back to me yeah yeah um but um yeah one thing i did the book as i told you i did the bookings for accept and i did the bookings for raven mm-hmm. and um the booking their shows in europe until uh including the wrestlers and wild tour for accept after that when balls to the walls came out john jackson uh, was doing their bookings because he could get them a deal support opening up for Judas Priest. Right. That's why they left me and went to do that. It's no mm-hmm. problem. Uh, I had bands enough where I did shows with. Um, but the sound guy for Accept, the, live, the front of house guy, was Michael Wagner. And um, so, and he started a company with the singer, Udo Dirk Schneider, called Double Trouble Productions. Mm-hmm. And that's how the, um, when Raven All for One, one for, uh, All for One record, their third album, was for, uh, produced by Udo and Michael Wagner. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how the single came out, where Udo was singing Inquisitor and Born to be Wild with Raven. Yeah. It was also released <clears throat> by Johnny Zazula in America as a picture disc. Mm-hmm. And... 
It's a little side story. It has nothing to do with Roadrunner, but it's nice because I was working with Accept and their sound guy, Michael. Um, at one show I did in Horst in, in, in the south of the Netherlands with Accept, he introduced um, George Lynch to me. I said, okay, yeah, he's an American guitar player. Okay, nice. What's your band called? Uh, yeah, I'll probably call it Duckin. Okay. Yeah, Michael is producing our first record, Breaking the Chains, in uh, Hanover right now. So, okay, nice. Okay. I'm uh, curious, you know. Mm. Never heard of them. There was no nothing out there. I didn't know about the band. Yeah. And then Michael Ware called me. Um, yeah, I gonna, I'm going to move to America. I go to the Redondo Beach. Don Duncan has a house there. I can stay in a room with him. And mm. we're going to start producing bands together. Cool. That's Because it's a nice story. So I'll, tell, I'll do the short version. Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, a couple of months later, he called me, Mike, I have a problem. I have two bands who want to, uh, we can produce, mm-hmm. but I don't know which one I should take. Can I have your advice? She said, sure, send me their stuff. Mm-hmm. So he sent me, I'll grab it out of here. And he sent me this. Where is it? Um, Must be here somewhere. Okay. I'm not sure which one it is. <laughs> on the on Letter Records. Yeah. Their own yep. label, Letter Records. Let's see, where is this one? This is no, this is Electra. Okay, this is their own. This is mm-hmm. on their own label on Letter Records. He mm-hmm. sent me this one. Uh Too Fast for Love by Motley Crew. Yep. He said and he sent me a cassette with 12 songs by a band called Great White. Oh. That we, you know, we can produce the first record of Great White and the second record of Motley Crue. Awesome. Uh, which band should we do? I said, well, Motley Crue is like poser, glam, blah, blah, blah. I don't like it. And that uh, Great White is a bit, a little bit southern, a little bit boring rock. I don't like either of them. I said, mm. well, which one should I do? I said, well, maybe you go with the band with the better musicians. Maybe you have a better chance. Mm. So they, he and Don, Don produced the first Great White record. Mm-hmm. And somebody else did uh, Shout at the Devil. Yeah. And, and Great White did okay. But Shout at the Devil went. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, we always fun about that one. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not a Roadrunner story, but it's a nice yeah, oh yeah, it's a good one. story. Did you ever know Holly Lane? Holly, holly. She worked in a New York office. I had her on the phone several times when I worked at Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever met her. Mm. I don't know. Maybe at the 25-year anniversary in New York party, maybe. But I don't know her, only by name. And I don't think I ever met her. Yeah, she was um, She was one of the, the first American hire by a case. Um, yeah, yeah. Steve, Steve Ricardo was the second. Um, okay. And together they opened that New York office. And Okay. Um, in my chat with Steve, he was going on about how it was incredibly difficult because there were just two young 20-somethings trying to make all of the, juggle all the shit and get all the bands working and all this stuff. And then Case is ringing them up every day trying to get, you know, numbers back and, and, and trying to get the budgets fixed and stuff like that. And they're just kids and they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I just wondered... Sorry? It was Road Racer then. Uh, yeah, because of the... Um, the Warner deal, the the Warner Brothers uh, come. Uh, they quality um, the coyote and Roadrunner. Kind of an agreement to to use the name of Roadrunner, and for a while it was Road Racer. Yeah, yeah. 
which is to do with yeah, licensing and yeah, roadrunner everywhere bikes. else, but US it was always road racer. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Did um, were you close with roadrunner when um, when Monty joined? You see, like this massive res- uh, upsurgence of like progressive thrash and those kind of really um, balls to the wall, almost post Metallica in a way. Um, did you like any of that stuff, like the Realm stuff? And you mentioned you didn't really take much of a fancy to Sepultura. No, the, the first two records I didn't like. I like Arise and Chaos AD and all that mm. stuff. Uh, I mean, I worked with the band later, and Andre, of course, when he was doing their shows uh, with Sacred Prax, the tour where Gloria met Max. Yeah. Um, but those were all little bands. I mean, the only funny thing why it was interesting, they were from Brazil, you know? That was the angle, so, yeah. So that was that was weird. I mean, that was w- kind of weird. But um, I didn't I didn't have to do much with the Amer- I never went to the um, American office before maybe the twenty five year anniversary Ooh. thing in uh, New York. I, I mean, I stayed in Europe. I, had, I was busy enough here with my magazine. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Tell me about the uh, the twenty five anniversary the twenty five year anniversary show then. Because that's a big that was a big deal at the time. No one had done anything like that. Yeah, they? it didn't sell at all. I mean, it wasn't busy there. It didn't sell a lot of tickets. And uh, I mean, I met a lot of people for the first time. I met the guy who, oh yeah, that was nice. I think at the yeah at the party there was a guy called. Well, the guy who signed Nickelback to Rose. Uh-huh. I've got his name here because he's on my he's on my hit Little list. Guy, um, uh, where is he? Here he is, Ron Berman. Ron Berman. I met him there. I said, yeah. "Listen, a friend of mine. They are have a, a band there on Wind Up, but they're buying themselves out, and mm-hmm. I think it would be a good addition to Roadrunner." But uh, Ron didn't sign them. I mean, a couple of years later, they got him. I'm talking about Alter Bridge because yep. they went for the second record. They went to Universal for the blackbird album mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm still in, in touch not daily but i, I talk to the guys all the time because I'm, I'm helping alter bridge i'm helping them in the background a lot getting them in touch with the right people and i tried to get them signed for the blackbird record mm-hmm. and but then and they signed to universal because roadrunner didn't get back to them or whatever but i tipped ron berman you can't yeah. they try to get away from the label if you want to have them you should act now but yeah, he yeah, hasn't yeah. done it, so they didn't sign him for that great record. But I was in Florida, so and uh, Mark Tremonti called me. Can you come? Uh, we have a warehouse where we practice. Can you come with your wife? And sure. So we drove up there in uh, in the Orlando area, and it was a huge stage, full PA and stuff, mm-hmm. and a, a two-person couch in the middle of the room. Mm-hmm. Me and my wife had to sit there and they played the whole Blackbird record like half a year before it came out. Played wow. me all the songs because they want to have my opinion of it. Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm never beat around the bush. I always straight tell you whether it sucks or not. Yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. always that honest. That's why bands keep on sending me stuff. You know, where should we go with this and that? And I give my free advice. Uh, yeah. As yeah. I played you 10 seconds of a band, but I can't get him signed. That's weird. But because the business is pretty in a weird situation right it's now. It's in a very weird place. I was speaking to... So um, nobody, so sorry, nobody is trying to fork out a lot of money to get an, uh, an artist 
I was speaking to Andrew Field of APF Records. It's like a stoner doom metal um, record in Manchester. And um, we were talking about the semantics of it. And is you can't, you just, there's no, there's no point in investing too much up front because most of the time a band already has an album that they've made. So really the only value that if a band approaches you is because you've got profile and you've got a distribution model in a way because you've got a brand. But if you want to develop an artist and if you want to really invest the time into it, you're going to have to fork out a lot of money and be in it for the long haul, which a lot of people... doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I can't, the risk is too great, really. Because you can't do what Roadrunner did. You can't go, here's five grand and we'll sign 20 bands and hope that one sells out. You know, you can't do that anymore. You can't take that risk because, you you know, you'll get thrown out of dogs. I know. It's uh, business has changed. Definitely. And that's a pity, not to the good. I mean, never in in the world has there has been so much interest in music, but now everybody consumes it to half an inch speakers as an MP3. Yep. Where when I go to Elvis to uh, Michael Basquet, uh, where he has a studio near Orlando, when I go there, mm-hmm. uh, you know he has an old SSL table, old analog. You know the hairs go go up in your hair when he plays you the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah that sound it's not there anymore you know it's uh yeah yeah only few people who uh you know kids they listen they're a fan of uh this week they're a fan of this band and they listen to their mp3 songs singles they don't release albums almost anymore mm-hmm. and then tomorrow they're a fan of a totally different kind of band yeah yeah it's uh so it's nothing when i bought i sound like an old man i looked <laughs> Who have they toured with? Who produced the record? Then I'm going to find out what else did he produce? What mm. did those bands they toured with kind of music do? And that's how you uh, yeah, yeah. discover bands. Uh, I'm still kind of doing that stuff, but... It's been interesting because there's now, so man. many... In this, in this Roadrunner project, there's been so many bands that I just completely missed. I completely oh. missed, but I had to obviously start from the start in 80 and just work my way through every single one. And I'm finding loads, which I'm just, I've fallen in love with, like, but I would have had no chance of knowing. Like, um, my, my first typo negative album was dead again in 2007. I'd never heard bloody kisses. I never, I'd, I'd never had. And then when I was doing the, my homework, it was like, Holy fucking shit. How did I miss this? And then there's another realm, which is another progressive. What That was Monty's first signing before. Okay. Sepultura. Yeah. Um, they're an incredible band as well. It's just so much fun. I talked to them, I think, last year at the Keep It True Festival. I think they played. Yeah, they've come back for a couple of reunion shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're really good. Um, and Cyclone as well. Cyclone were a Belgian band. I saw Belgium. those, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a band competition. Actually, the singer, uh, I'm, I'm at record fairs. Where I have a booth where I sell stuff. And he's always next to me, the singer who wasn't that band. He, uh, Guido. Hmm? Guido. Guido, yeah. Um, and I, I see him once a year at the, at, the, at, the, at the record store fair. He has a booth next to me. So uh, I signed the band. There was a contest in Belgium where I was one of the juries. And the winner signed a deal with Roadrun. That's how Cyclone came to the label. Oh, Oh, Guido has an interesting story. They were the winner of a Belgian band competition, and the prize was to get signed to Roadrun. That's how Cyclone came to the label. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Guido had Guido had some interesting stories about Roadrunner. 
Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dude, I'm, I'm, I've taken up too much of your time, but I've got two more questions. I, was, I could keep going on and we could keep doing this. I know, this. me too. I know so there's so many stories, but probably my wife is going to swear at me if I'm not. You know, I mean, otherwise make another appointment and call me back, you know. Let's tomorrow. do it. I'm, I'm good. Let's, let's. I'll drop you an email after this and we'll talk after, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll schedule. Yeah, send me some questions. I can look some stuff up, but there's yeah. so much history here and so much stuff I've done and I forgot about. And then later, oh yeah, I did this. But then I just send an email or do one phone call and it changes totally the career of a band. This sounds arrogant now, but it's, it's not, just it's, what I happened. And nowadays I'm talking to bands like now with the, where, where we don't have, live reviews or stuff in our magazine. Hey, go on, back. Um, no, I'm scanning, I'm scanning old issues mm-hmm. and uh, digitize them and put them online for sale to make some extra money. Because yep. I don't have advertising from festivals now, mm-hmm. club shows, mm-hmm. booking agents. All those advertising is gone now. And I have to keep the magazine afloat. So I make some extra money by scanning, you know, magazines from 1980. I'm now at number one, I think, 1990. Yeah, number one, ninety-nine is the next oh, one. Cool. So I have ten years of magazines already scanned and digital on my website for mm-hmm. sale for a little bit to get some money and you know to keep afloat. Yeah, yeah. It's tough times. Well, I'll make sure when I put this up, I'll put this up like tonight or something, and I'll I'll make sure I put all the links and things like that. But I've got one more question, and let's yes. let's definitely reschedule, and I'll I'll gear my questions less towards the business side and more towards the bands themselves, yeah, because I, I think. Know. That's that's where you are in it. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know the business side. I don't know. Um, but so, you should talk to Ed Vanzel because he knows more about that one. I'm going to need the spell. He knows. <laughs> but, the, the phone number. That, uh, d- yeah, drop me. I'll, I'll drop you a, a mail. I'll, I'll send you his email address. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So la- last that, question, and then your you, yes, your wife can get back to you. Um, have you ever seen a ghost? Such a weird one, but I, I'm asking everyone. I did shows with Merciful Fate. <laughs> and every time when Merciful Fate was in the country, some unexplainable things happened when I was doing shows with them. And in the beginning, say, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But if you're driving back from a show in Hengelo where they played in the club and we go drive back to the motel Eindhoven or to Andre's house where they stayed, and in the middle of a two-lane road in a dark wooden secluded area a wife in a white gown or a woman and or a lady in a white gown stands in the middle where the dotted line is in the middle of the two lanes yeah, yeah, yeah. and steps in front of your car just when you're getting there at three in the morning yeah. and i just could swerve around it then you think oh yeah sure i've got the kim ben experience sitting in the back of the car <laughs> or when a kind of an eagle kind of bird or a smaller whatever falcon is diving towards your car trying to attack you when you're driving or you see something in a, at the end of the night and you stop at the road and there's a huge lake of blood a huge pool of blood in the middle of the road you just look on the back of your seat and say oh yeah sure just keep on driving wow. <laughs> uh, yes uh, I didn't see a ghost but uh, I saw a ghost of course because they play some festivals here. But yeah. no, not a ghost, but I had some weird stuff happening when I was doing shows with Merciful Fate, yes. I find it so interesting how you, the link there is Merciful Fate. No, it is. <laughs> it's always, it's always, always there. When, uh, when uh, the guys were around. That's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. But it's true. Hey, 
It's what I it have Andre to prove it because he was sitting in the car next to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. Right, I'm going to let you go. Well, thanks very much. I'm going to. I'll put this up. I'll put this up as soon as I can. I, I tend to edit these things straight away once my kid goes to bed. Um, and I'll send you an email regarding the names of the people.